Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nathan Sager. Today, we are pleased to be joined by Andre Lachance and Jean-Francois Menard about team chemistry, 30 elements for coaches to foster cohesion, strengthen communication skills, and create a healthy sport culture. It was released on April 19th through publisher ECW Press. Need some life coaching? Well, even if you don't want it, you'll get it. Just go to your Instagram account, and the world is full of experts on how you can get the most out of you. I don't even need to scroll to find an example. The 11th tile on my feed says, Bill Gates, nine rules you will, you will never learn in school. One, life is not fair. Get used to it. Stop expecting life to hand you think you deserve. That's not my mistake. That's how it's typed out. Number two, the world doesn't care about your self-esteem. Start making something of yourself today, right now, and so it goes. Pop back out, and now the algorithm thinks, I crave this stuff. First tile, 12 habits you don't realize are killing you slowly. Now, not all of these are filled with nonsense. Many are, but not all. These are faceless accounts, but you can find loads of influencers who will tell you as much in short videos. The thread with most of them is that they are supposedly self-made successes, no school needed, just hustle. A common theme seems to be you need to unlearn or what you taught or what you were taught was garbage. Before I go down that path, there's a reason I'm bringing all of this up. Today we have Andre Lachance and Jean-Francois Menard on the show. Andre is a professor in the School of Human Kinetics at the University of Ottawa, and he was the manager of the Canadian women's baseball team from 2004 to 2018. He then coached Team France to a European championship. He got to know Jean-Francois, JF for short, when he was a student in some of his coaching classes at the University of Ottawa back in 2002. This was the time when Andre was creating the aforementioned National Women's Baseball Program. Today, JF is a mental performance expert who specializes in performance psychology. He's worked with Canadian Olympians like moguls uh, King Mikhail Kingsbury, Super Bowl champion Laurent Duvernay-Tardif, and both have experience with the world-renowned uh, performers of Cirque du Soleil. So, what does a pro make of this world with so many amateur experts? It's certainly one of the questions I aim to uncover today. Let's peer behind the curtain a little to understand the mental aspect of coaching and mental coaching in general. Before we welcome our two guests, Nate Sager, what's on your mind after reading this book? Well, Neil, it could probably just be boiled down to that aphorism. We've all heard it, right? Championships are one in the room. Like not many teams have gotten to the top of something if they didn't get along. I mean, yes, there's a few examples that are throughout history. The Bronx Zoo, New York Yankees of the late 70s. The Shaq and Kobe uh, Lakers of the early 2000s that Jeff Perlman wrote about in his book, Three Ring Circus, that we profiled. Mm -hmm. But usually, if you get a bad fit, it can all go horribly asunder. Neil, I'm actually, when we were thinking about this, I was reminded of a person from your pandemic project, the long-form piece you wrote about the 
late hockey player, Brian Fogarty, who played junior hockey in Kingston when we were kids, a fellow named Jacques Tremblay. Here was a smart, high-energy guy. I mean, he was still coaching junior hockey when he was in his 80s. But someone who's and it's someone who knew him, I remember them saying he probably wrote more books about hockey than some hockey people have read. When he came to Kingston to coach that team, and we're following you and I at the time were following it as like you know 10, 11 year old kids, it was an utter disaster. He ended up not even lasting the season, and that team set a league record for consecutive losses that still stands almost 35 years later. Yeah, that came after an eight and 20 start. And, you know, also on that note, let's not forget uh, another academic uh, who was uh, kind of ushered out the door with Fogarty's coach in Quebec, Dave Chambers, who was on the faculty at the university or at York University. Yeah, yeah. If the if people don't buy into what you're selling, it's it's not going to work. But yeah, Kingston, that always stuck with me. That team was so bad that it got sold and renamed and then had to be sold and renamed again just to. <laughs> but ever after that, everything went so well for them now. Real but, hockey was not back in town. Yeah, and just a minor, the Kingston connection a little, a little bit, because that's our jam, you know. Recall when we had uh, Doug Smith on to talk about his book on the Toronto Raptors. Season four, episode seven. Right, and I, and I sort of tied that to, you know, personal relationship with basketball, early exposure to the Smart family, you know, the roots of the Carlton Ravens uh, Canadian University basketball dynasty. Once I did ask Dave Smart, you know, what's an X factor? for Carlton that you know because people will just always point to the talent they'll point to the coaching and Dave's answer was well we've always had people who understood the progression from being followers to becoming secondary leaders to becoming primary leaders you know Dave Smart you know is an expert in mental skills like an NHL team used to bring him in as a consultant to do that and he's he and his staff could always identify people who had the skills to play but also just I guess really just the self-awareness to fit into that group dynamic. And of course, that's the Canadian analog of, I guess, mid-major D1 college basketball, not the NBA with the salaries and the agents and the egos and the obligations. But that's an environment where a star has to also be a leader. They can't just be a stat compiler who's on their own program, right? Uh, and I guess that's, I mean, that's what's all these in at the upper echelons of sport these days. and companies i mean group chemistry is now a, a billions of dollars industry you'd have to think right yeah yeah it, i mean i think it was probably the uh most it was probably like the core subject of what i think was one of the one or two most insightful sports movies of the last uh, six seven years richard linkletter's everybody wants some i've heard about that film you speak yeah. highly of it yeah, I, yeah which i've seen it and i've keep telling people you got to go watch, go watch it. The, and that's a movie that it's a sports movie, but there's, you never see the team actually playing a game against an actual opponent. It's a movie that follows these college baseball bros having a bonding weekend on the first weekend of school. And you sort of see the, you know, the everyone settling into their roles. Everyone plays nice at first. And then on day two, as, as the Glenn Powell character puts it, their true a-hole nature comes out. And Linkletter, he, like this, this is a movie that shows like sort of young, you know, alpha male type guys who are actually do have some depth to them and care about each other, which is healthy and what, you know, probably what a, a lot of men, young males of that age are lacking these days. 
but it's also at the same time smart enough that he made an anti-toxic masculinity movie at the same time. Uh, and I don't want to get too down, far down that uh, ranty rabbit hole, but I, I always thought it was something unique that he, you know, put that out of a movie, which he said in 1980, just before the U.S. election that year. And he released it just months before the 2016 election. And we know, and both times, as you know, the electorate and the, and the culture chose to indulge a certain type of, uh, you know, male fragility. And well, we've seen the results. But bringing this back on point, you know, Andre Lachance and Jean-Francois Menard, they, they talk a lot in this about how to teach concepts to athletes. And I always just think of like how much sports has changed over the years. Like you used to think of that stereotype in football, Neil, where the, the coach brings out this 300 page binder and just here, here, learn all the plays. And now, you know, that, that was going out long before, you know, you know, the digital technology evolved. Now you see teams now like the, uh, you know, I'm a fan of the Minnesota Vikings and they've, they've got a setup and they borrowed this from the Los Angeles Rams, the Super Bowl champs, where there's a video board like right at the, on the practice field and they can go back and watch like right after a drill and, and correct and, and, and uh, praise, uh, you know, football playbooks. And, you know, this idea, here's a bunch of, you know, squiggly lines on, on a page. Uh, that, that started fading out before before 4K. Uh, I definitely, if you, people want to know how that all went down, uh, check out a book by S.C. Gwynn called The Perfect Pass, American Genius and the Reinvention of Football. It all goes into Hal Mummy and Mike Leach you know, coaching small colleges and just realizing, hey, you can you can pass the ball 60 times a game if you practice how to pass the ball 60 times a game and you have to make your drills so the players get more and more reps throwing and catching footballs and, and running routes. And that became, you know, stuff they did at a little college in Iowa. That became foundational in making the NFL all about quarterbacks and wide receivers and not having you know, this, you know, like I say, 300 page playbook. I mean, Vince Lombardi was the same, even if he didn't have the same objectives, right? You keep the playbook lean and, and the players, as he used to put it, find freedom within that discipline. And they, and they know when to riff and as, you know, to borrow that line from winning time, you know, you put the music in the player's hands. And I mean, that's why I was really, really, really enjoyed uh, what uh, JF and Andre had to say, because they were showing, okay, here's how you build the culture of a group. But the, to get it to the point where, you know, people feel like, you know, they can bring ideas forward. Uh, you know, one of, one of the reasons that the, a podcast they never, you know, miss on a weekly basis uh, is, is the office ladies is, isn't just because I, you know, love the show. Uh, it's the joy, which the two hosts, the two actresses, Jenna Fisher and An Angela Kinsey just described the collaborative learning environment that you know the showrunner greg daniels created he was you know a best idea wins guy and if you know comedy you know that's why he probably he has showrunner trees because it's not just okay you're doing this job if you have a good idea let you know let's try it but how does a group get to where people are going to feel bold enough to not only row but steer right i mean that's i mean that starts usually at the top and and how the course is charted by a coach and i i think uh you know andre lachance and, and jean-francois menard have have done a good job showing how a coach at any level can can uh can try to create that environment thanks nate before we are joined by the both of them uh, i'd like to let you know that you can purchase this book and any others on our website at sportslift.ca um, you can find all of our episodes there as well. 
Um, we are on social media, uh, of course, on Twitter at SportsLiftPod, as well as Instagram. And feel free to message, share, or comment. We'll be right back with our guests. And we're back. Another episode of Sports Lit Nate. It's uh, it's going to be a fun day today, isn't it? It is. It's always a fun day when we do this. Well, the first thing I want to do, I want to ask Jean-Francois and Andre, how are you both feeling out of 100? <laughs> well, uh, I've got to say that I'm about a 95. I'm having a good day. And and same for me. You know, it's, it's a long weekend, like, like you gotta be over 90 for sure so Jean-Francois and Andre uh you can both answer this or one of you can why why is it a, a good strategy for a coach or a you know somebody to ask why how are you doing out of 100 and just instead of just asking how you're doing so one of the reasons this is really important guys is because um you know when we haven't seen someone in a little while what's the typical question we'll ask how are you doing right right, right. And then the person will just say, I'm doing well. How are you? And you'll, you'll answer, I'm doing great or I'm doing well or whatever. But how much information do you really get out of that? Uh, not much. And when you talk about a relationship between a coach and an athlete, I think what's the most important thing is to get the most important uh, or the most information as possible about the current state of the person. And that's how you really coach someone. So, so this question you just asked is one of our chapters where we explain like, by asking someone what their rating on 100 is, then the person has to pick a number. So one, they got to think about their current state. And two, and most importantly, is to ask them to elaborate on why they give themselves that rating. So you might you might get into a meeting or start coaching an athlete and you might think they're doing well. They might tell you, oh, I'm a 92. And they might tell you they're a 60. And it might catch you by surprise a little bit. And then whatever that, that athlete's going to give you in terms of information should have a huge impact in the way you're going to you're going to coach them and so sometimes i find we don't we don't assess the situation enough and it's just it's just a, a tool an easy strategy to get additional information to influence the way you're going to coach thank you jean francois andre is there is there anything to add on that uh, and i'll follow up with a question you know like at the end of the day like knowing well the athletes on the team that you coach is, is so important and, and i think most coaches fail as getting as much information as possible so you can adapt your your, the, your interventions your leadership style the way you're gonna teach slash coach the athletes on, on the team um, so starting conversation with, with, with questions and, you, and, and the, the people who are going to buy the book, you'll see that we kind of ask lots of questions as, as, uh, as, as the authors that, that we are. And the same thing as we coach also, we ask lots of questions. And I think coaches uh, are not good enough at asking good questions. And that one is a very good question to start a good conversation. So who, how did, how did, uh, Jean-Francois, was it you, how did you arrive at this, uh, you know, was this somewhere, did you, did you borrow this from someone or is it something that you thought of some so one day and just ran with it? Uh, I've got to take credit. I am pretty sure I invented that one. I had, I've <laughs> never seen someone else use it the way I use it. And the reason is guys is my reality is I don't, some of these athletes I coach, I don't see them every day. Sometimes I won't see them for a week or I won't speak to them for, you know, two weeks or three weeks. And, and there's a ton of stuff that goes on 
during our last meeting and our current meeting. Um, and it's important for me to probe, to assess, to, to get additional information and what happened during that time, because my job is to coach them on their current needs, not coach them on where they were two weeks ago, coaching them where they are now. And so uh, I just noticed that the way I would start interventions or coaching sessions with athletes, sometimes I, I didn't get enough information. And I just kind of came up with this, this little strategy that uh, it's been working so well that I, I, I still use it today. It's been about 10 years now that I use it. So the, the basis for this book, uh, and it's described uh, very animatedly, is the, the periodic table of elements relating to sports chemistry. Um, could you explain, maybe Andre, could you explain how that came to be how, and how that works? So, uh, yeah, so, yeah, please. Sure. Um, and I'd like to give credit to uh, a very boring Mexican speaker at the conference <laughs> in Cuba for, yeah. for to give me the uh, the idea to uh, to share with, with, with JF. But that, that started like that. Like, basically, I'm in a conference room and I'm attending a very boring com- uh, like presentation and I start thinking about things. And JF and I have been thinking about writing a book and then suddenly, for whatever reason, I came across in my mind of the periodic, periodic table of elements, you know, that we've all learned at school at some point through chemistry, whether it was early in your high school years or later in your high school years. And then we all remember it, although in our case, um, we didn't like much chemistry, uh, but we still remember that table. It made sense. Uh, it was kind of organized. Uh, so we thought, like, why don't we change those elements for team chemistry so the the word chemistry came back so we thought about rearranging that table so it makes sense for team sports context so so, um, so yeah so we came up with 30 elements that we think foster uh team chemistry um in in, in sports in general and those 30 elements became our, our 30 chapters of our book so uh they're, they're under uh, four categories these 30 elements creation communication collaboration and coordination i believe and are they able to could be combined across the board? Like, you know, like H2O is water in the normal periodic table? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, you know, we thought about that at the beginning. It, it became a bit too complicated. <laughs> but to, to answer your question differently, the book is, is, is designed so you can, start, you can start reading it at any place in, in the book. Mm-hmm. If you want to start, if uh, chapter 14, which is 5-1, uh, catches your attention. If you start with chapter 14, uh, you'll be okay. If you prefer to uh, start with uh, chapter 22, which is titled Together, you won't be lost if you start by, by ch- with uh, chapter 22. So it's, it's designed that way. So you can read what catches your attention first. And of course, you'll, you'll understand the link between those elements that you read through. But uh, it, it's okay if you don't start from the beginning. That's how we designed it. And, and if I can add something, Thing, just to piggyback on what Andre was saying. So what Andre is saying is it's written in a modular way, which means you can take any elements in, in the book and create your own coaching molecules, if you want to if you want to say it that way. So for, for someone, for the current situation that you're living, it's chapter 5, 17, and 24 that will help you manage that situation better. Well, that's your molecule for the day or for the week. And so um, and, and something else that's very important is Andre and I don't believe in recipes. You know, there's a lot of these leadership books out there that say, you know, the seven habits of a great leader or which there's a lot of great content in those books. But I think I think if you 
believe you have a formula, that's the first strike for me as a great leader. Great leaders don't have formulas. They, they adapt to whatever's going on. And so we kind of just threw 30 elements out there um, and you just pick and choose whatever makes for you, whatever makes sense for you. Right. Yeah. And now in terms of uh, adapting to what you have to work with and putting things together, I love the Lego example in the book. Uh, JF, why is it, you know, you know, a healthy approach to ask like, you know, a child who, you know, plays with Legos or like my nephew likes to build, build, build things with his toys about the choices they made that got them toward the finished product rather than just looking at the finished product. Yeah, totally. So, so that chapter is about a parent and a child and you can make a link between a coach and an athlete or even like a leader in a, in a corporate setting in their employee. So What's very typical when the child, let's say a four or four-year-old boy builds a, a tower made out of Legos in his room. What's the first thing the child's going to do? He's going to run out of his room, go get mommy and daddy and say, come see, come see, come see. And typically parents will all say the same thing. They will see the tower and they'll congratulate the child right away by like saying, wow, or like bravo, or that's unbelievable. Um, but actually that can act, that, that could be negative for the child's development because in the end, you're conditioning the child to become obsessed with the actual result. So getting the wow is getting the bravos. But when we talk about resiliency, when you talk about perseverance, when you talk about adapting to change, it's about understanding what led to the actual result. So we're not saying not to congratulate the child. All we're saying is make the child reflect on how we got to that, to that result. So you could ask a question like, um, was that the original plan? Or did you plan to build something else? And you might, you might think, yeah, but it's a four-year-old child. They'll have something to say. They might say, well, I wanted to build a house, but then it kept going higher and higher and higher. So I decided to build a tower. Oh, okay. Have you been working on that for a while? And you might think, well, it's four years old. Yeah, but the child might say, I've been working on that since breakfast. So all of a sudden, the child understands these concepts of like time, changing plans. You might ask the child, like, did you have any problems along the way? Way? Did your did your tower fall? Did it break? Oh yeah, it wasn't very solid. At some point, I had to put some extra Legos, and then at the end, you can say the quick bravo or I'm proud of you. But it's to develop that thought process of all the things the child went through in order to, to get to that result. And when you do that, they're much more keen and prone in the future to develop creativity, hmm. uh, to be more persevering in in moments where it's difficult, um, and to actually understand what it takes to be successful. Yeah. I'm, I'm just flashing back on being a little, a little bit older than four and having a, my Legos, my Lego creations usually just des destroyed by, by a little brother, but that, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sean, but Andre, I also wondered uh, how, with coaching now at, at any level, especially with, you know, younger athletes, uh, how much greater do you think the expectations are to, you know, be responsible? be uh, respectful to everyone as an individual compared to when, say, any of us would have been, you know, you know, children playing sports? Well, you know, if you, if you think about, about life skills, uh, if you look at how uh, sports is developing around the world right now, though, those life skills are becoming so important. So as, as the leader of the group, as the coach of the team, uh, you have to show the way. Um, like I, w I was, I was talking to my colleagues in, in France. You know, they're world champion in, in soccer. Uh, they won the last World Cup, 
And I asked them, how do you uh, like pick your, the athletes on, your, on, on the team? And they said one of the criteria to select athletes is when we watch them play, we watch how they react when one of their teammates makes a mistake. If the body language is wrong, if the body language is not to the level of which we think it should be, you won't play for Team France. You, won't have, you, you will not represent the team at the World Cup in soccer. So can you imagine all the work that is being done by the coach in order to show the way to their athletes and not only at the highest possible level, which is the World Cup of soccer, but all the other layers of, 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 of development that is happening before they get there. So life skills, becoming respectful, as you mentioned, but not only that, there's so many other life skills. When you look at leadership skills, uh, you look at uh, being able to communicate in front of a, of a group and many other ones that we mentioned on the, in the book as well become so important. And at the end of the day, how you as a leader be, behave um, becomes how your athletes on the team will behave also. So if you keep screaming to the officials or you're fighting with parents on the other team or whatever it is, uh, the athletes, the kids on your team will think it's, it's, it's how it should be done. So, um, so I, think, I think we make a big case in our book about how you are as an individual, as a, as a coach, as a person first, in order to teach those fundamentals, life skills uh, with the athletes on your team. Andre, if we're looking at coaching specifically, what level of coach is this book best suited for? Uh, I think all levels. Um, you know, like we're, we're a little bit maybe more towards uh, coaches uh, involved in a bit more in competition. Uh, but there's so many things that will resonate to the moms and dads that are involved, um, like uh, coaching soccer or baseball in the summer. Uh, coaching basketball or hockey in the winter um, and 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 the book is so practical also with with ideas and strategies that could be put into place like tomorrow morning at your next practice uh, that I think any level uh, of coaching will, will will find what they need uh, Jeff what do you think well I think I think uh, Andre you're right like I mean I do work mostly with older athletes and most of my clients are elite. And I know Andre in your coaching career as well, but we were very mindful when we wrote the book that it wasn't geared only towards the elite because we know that there's a lot of coaches out there that don't, they don't, they don't earn a salary doing this. You don't do, don't do it full time. Like it's, it's volunteer work. Right. So we had to keep it, you know, understandable for these, for these coaches as well. So like Andre said, they could use it um, immediately and takes away some nuggets to, to help their, their, intervention methods, the way they communicate. Um, so I think it's geared towards everyone as well. And, and speaking of uh, those high-performance athletes you work with, JF, uh, I was struck when you were talking about, you know, the Moguls King, uh, Mikhail Kingsbury, and how his support team is 14 people. Although, you know, us watching the Olympics on CBC, we just see him going down the Moguls course. How, how uh, valuable is it to for the individual sport athlete to see themselves as part of a team totally well i have a philosophy uh, nate that even if you're an individual athlete you're always part of a team um and you know when people talk about team sports it's the you know the athletes that are many playing at the same time on a playing field and that's why we say team sports but every individual athlete has a huge team around them especially at the elite level 
And so uh, for Mick, who had to deal with a lot of pressure going into the Olympics, it was crucial for him to remember that he was not alone. Because we typically, when we feel pressure, we typically close in. We typically feel that we're alone. There's no one else that feels the pressure like we are. Um, and I force my clients whenever they're stressed, they're nervous, or they feel the, ner- ner- you know, the negative pressure to remember that they have a support group around them. And it's very comforting to know that and to actually see these people supporting us and feeling it as well. And Mick did a great job in preparation for the uh, PyeongChang Olympics. Um, and we go into the details in the story in one of our chapters. But to, to never forget that when you have a me philosophy, you can always change it to we. And there's a big difference between the me and the we in terms of how we manage a situation, especially around pressure. And, and, and you also, uh, JF, have dealt with, um, with Max Perot as well, correct? Yes. So my question is, in Be- at Beijing 2022, both had completely different outcomes in the sense that Mick uh, was favored to win and, 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 and he surprisingly didn't, um, and neither did uh, Hiroshima. Um, but uh, Max had, you know, had to overcome Hodgkin lymphoma and then he went on to win gold. So how did you, I'm, I'm assuming you were there, right? So how did you deal with those two different cases where one person surprised uh, in a good way and in a, in a sense uh, um, Mick didn't probably perform as as the outside perspective or outside opinions thought he would yeah well first of all they were back to back and one was one day and the other was the next day so it was a lot of emotions in 48 hours um, listen it's judge sports right and you know, some people say Mick choked, but if you really, if you're a Moguls fan and you're, you've been watching Moguls skiing for a long time, there's a lot of people that said that he should have won with the quality of his skiing. But again, it's a judge sport and anything can happen. Um, but in the end, he was proud of what he did. And uh, I think that's the most important thing is that he regret that he didn't go any faster a little bit. But I mean, there are so many good things that he accomplished as well. And it's so easy to look at what you didn't do. Um um, and, and, you know, and, and forget all the great things you did do. And we're still talking about a third Olympic medal in three Olympic games. So um, I was very, very proud of him. Um, and also just the way he handled himself, like the whole week before the actual competition, I was with him every day and he was a real pro. I mean, just straight down to business, did what he had to do, managed his energy perfectly during the week. Um, and then Max, well, Max is just, you know, such an inspirational story. I mean, the guy... Um, almost died with cancer and was able to get over it with chemo and comes back two months after his chemo treatments and wins the X Games in in Norway. And then, you know, a few years later, wins two Olympic medals for Canada. It's, uh, I could talk about it for hours. He's someone that I truly, truly respect and um, a very, very special human being. In terms of, in terms of coaching them, uh, again, they're individuals, but was there, was it, I mean, did you employ some of the, your same tactics in, in practice with them or what, did you have to you know, completely rewrite that because of the situation, especially with Max having cancer? Right. No, it's, it's literally the same thing. I mean, uh, the context can change, um, but the actual work remains the same. I remember when Max was diagnosed with cancer, the first thing he told me was, Jeff, I don't want you to coach me differently because I have cancer. We've been working together for already five years and you felt me win Olympic medals and win some X games. I need the same type of coaching now to, to win 
cancer to, to beat cancer. And so um, essentially the same mental skills, the same type of approach, but uh, just a different context. So I'm going to pose this question to the both of you. And um, you, uh, I think JF had mentioned it a little bit earlier about all the books out there of different coaches, but let's, let's take a closer look at, at social media. And there's plenty of experts uh, in life coaching online. Usually they're faceless tiles, but tell you, tell you the 10 things you need to do or don't do to, to succeed. Um, of course, you know, I, I would highly doubt this is coming from academics such as yourself. So how do you both uh, with academic backgrounds see what's going on and see your role in relation to this plethora of life coaching that's going on on, on Instagram in terms of tiles and even, you know, maybe people uh, as well that, that post videos that don't always seem to have anything other than hustle? Well, that's a good question. Uh, there's obviously with the, with the social media, there's so many people out there um, uh, trying to figure out all the problems in the world in sports and in, 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 other, um, in other domains as well. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, if, if, you, uh, if you're looking for support, if you're looking to become better at, at, at what you do, in our case, it, it, it's coaching. Uh, it, it comes. It starts with you. Like, uh, like for me, like uh, uh, I'm, I'm curious. Like, you have no idea how curious I am. Um, and I think at the end of the day, like I'm able to uh, sort out what's good and what's not. Uh, and and also with me over over the over the years, like people asking me, how did you learn coaching? And my answer is always the same. I, my my best teachers were the athletes. Because if you get to know well your athletes, if you ask the good questions, they're going to teach you so many things where you won't need uh, as much uh, social media uh, as, as people consume nowadays. So, uh, so probably those are my two initial thoughts about, about your question is being a lifelong learner, uh, be curious, um, ask lots of questions, and get to know your athletes well because at the end of the day, they're going to, they're going to make you better. Is there a danger, uh, Jean-Francois um, or Andre, is there a danger in the average person not understanding the difference between experts such as yourself and what they're seeing online, like these basic concepts of uh, coaching you through to success? Well, is there a danger? I think there's always a danger. There's uh, just with the Internet in general. Um, you know, you can <laughs> anything, anyone can post anything. So it's, it's to answer your question, is there a danger? Yes, there's a danger. But I, I think what Andre said is very important is, is, you know, to rely on what actually makes sense, what makes you reflect, to sort out what's good and what's not. Um, and I think it's actually great to have access to a lot of people. I remember when I first started in the field, was coming out of school, you have to go to a conference to learn from experts and, you know, to get some information from other people now you can do it from your own office and just go online and watch these TED talks and, you know, learn from these podcasts like we're doing right now. And so, um, and so, you know, I, I took away some stuff from people that I don't even know and maybe don't respect that much, but maybe it's just <laughs> one thing they said or the way they said it that I just make it my own. Um, mm. So in the end, it's about understanding what you need and applying it according to if it makes sense or not, based on your values, based on uh, your leadership philosophy. So yeah, it's just to be smart. Hmm. 
And and for each of you, I sort of want to circle back because uh, of the to to your back backgrounds in coaching and maybe Andre, you you can be up first with this one because you you know coached with the uh, national women's baseball team for so many years, and we've had you know pe- women uh, sports women on who are national team athletes and other sports such as Sammy Joe Small a couple of years ago. I just wondered in terms of specific to th- that experience, and I mean that's we're talking dozens of players over you know fifteen years, but specific to that experience, what were the greatest things you learned from athletes who were you know, helping build the the profile for women in a sport that had been, you know, traditionally male. Well, you know, I would think like for me when I when I joined the team that was back in two thousand three, I didn't I didn't know like I was not even sure I wanted to coach women's in baseball. I was not sure I was a believer in it at, at the time, and they told me, "Well, why don't you try it? If you don't like it, we'll give it to someone else." And it lasted fifteen years. So. <laughs> That tells you that tells you that uh, I really, really enjoyed those 15 years coaching the Canadian team, and I would never trade that experience with anything else that uh, that I've done in, in my career as a coach. But at the end of the day, I think the main thing is to be vulnerable. Um, like it goes back to uh, my answer to your previous question. Like I, I, I can't count how many times. Uh, and I keep telling that same story, but it, it tells a lot about about the experience. Is that I, I cannot count the number of times I, I ran a drill uh, because I thought it would solve the problem. And at the end, of the, at, after a couple of minutes, one of people say, "Coach, like that drill, it's not working. Like it, it's BS. It's not it's just not working." I said, "Okay, like I, I could have the, the, my first reaction could have been, well, it's my drill. Let's continue to do it, even if it's not good." Or um, I, that's the route I decided to take is that, okay, how can we make it work? Because the, the intention of the drill is to fix this problem. How can we make it work? And together as a group, we would fix it. And one athlete could say, would, would say like, okay, if we change this or that, maybe that could work. I said, okay, let's try it. And then together we would find an outstanding drill to address a specific thing that we had to fix on that specific thing. And, and to me, it's, it's, it's so important not to value or not to see your position as head coach of a team or just a coach on the team as having all the answers. Um, I think you're there to support the athlete. It's an athlete-centered um, position that you're in, and it's coach-driven, but you're working together as a group. And, and to me, that has been the, the, the key, probably the key to the success that, that we've had. Hmm. And I also, I'd love to, an example, because you were talking about the four C's, what, I think one of them at the creation point, an example you used was one day one of your you know, best players on your team forgot an article of, of the team uniform, and you're just like, well, you don't, you don't play today. Well, through, through lessons like that and showing how, how those things can you know, evolve over time, what are, you hoping to, what, are, what are you hoping to teach about how a group will have different standards as they progress and grow together? You know what? What's funny with this with this story, and, and I think GF was there. Uh, it was the first year with the team. We're in Japan, and then, one, like you mentioned, one of the athletes forgot her jersey for warming up, and I made the decision because we just started the program to remove that um, athlete from from the starting lineup. She was furious. Uh, she, she's a police officer in Toronto. I thought she wanted to to uh, to to to, uh, to kill me. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, like uh, fast forward 15 years later, every everyone on the team knows Melanie. That's the name of the athletes. 
nobody on the team has ever met her, but they know that story. And I don't even have to tell them to don't not forget any of your equipment because it's important because they've been told by others over time that it is important for us as a team to get our things together and not forgetting our stuff. Um, so that tells you a lot about one decision that, that was made that has an impact still 15 years after. I could have said, it's okay, well, make sure you don't forget it next time, but it would not have had the same impact as it had. Would the, would the same intervention be the same 10 years after in a totally different context? I don't know, maybe yes, maybe not, I don't know. But in this particular moment, I felt that was the right thing to do. In uh, chapter four under staff, Andre, um, you write about the need to be challenged as a coach. Um, and uh, in this question, it doesn't necessarily apply directly to coaching, but just in general and managing people, whether it's corporate or, or on the field or on the ice. How do you bring people uh, in onto your staff that will challenge you, but that won't be doing it in a way they're surreptitiously trying to take your job? Because I think that's certainly the case for you know people that want to move ahead you i mean if you you there certainly is merit in bringing in people that kind of are in your network because they're not necessarily going to try and usurp you so um how do you bring in these people that challenge you but aren't doing it for the you know the wrong reasons per se yeah, a very good question um and and that person that challenges you uh is so important you guys remember dr house on tv of course yeah do you think he was fun to work with? Not at all. <laughs> like he was not fun, right? But right. was he there for the right reason? Totally. You want to cure everything, every problem the patients were having. And that's the type of people in any organization, you know, that Dr. House who's not always fun, but he's there for the right reason that makes a huge impact on the team. And the, and the day that I realized that it was probably too late. I wish I would have known years earlier. Um, it made a difference for me because that person challenged me, but I knew that person was there for the right reason. So finding that, that giver type of, mm. of person is so important. And you know, if they challenge you to a point where at some point they feel they should get your position, so be it. I, th I think, I think the, 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 the team might be better at some point if, if someone is, is, um, is getting to a point where they should take over. Uh, the leader of the group, and there's nothing bad with that. It's good succession planning, actually. So I've, I've, I would, I would always go have someone on my team uh, that will challenge me all the time, and that that made a huge difference for me as a coach. What I would add to that, guys, is there's a way to do it as well. Like if if that assistant coach, whoever that person is, does it in a way to make you look silly in front of others or to call you out in front of a group, like that's that's not the way it should be done. You know, these are conversations you have maybe one-on-one -on -one or maybe just within your own staff um, in a very respectful way. And I think those are ground rules you need to put together before you get into that situation. So I would just add that because, you know, sometimes there would be some people that would do it on purpose to make you look silly or stupid. Right. Um, and that's not, what we're, that's not what we're talking about. Right. Um, so speaking of cohesion and temp team chemistry, um, how did you both get ECW to buy into this book? And can you take us into the room when you sold them on publishing it? I know it may have been your agent uh, or agents, but uh, yeah, give us, because this podcast is about sports books specifically. 
it's always interesting to know the business behind things. So how did you sell this book to ECW? Well, Neil and Nate, before I answer that question, um, I would like to say thank you for you for reading the book because sometimes we do interviews <laughs> with people and they don't, they don't really read the book and clearly with the ants the questions you're asking you you went through the the actual book so thank you for that <laughs> oh hey you know um, what that's the rule of this podcast we and then we i think nate will agree we created this podcast because we saw so many interviews uh, regarding books where the host had never read it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that's not, so, and that's not a knock on any any hosts you know they're getting a you know some you know cliff's notes on a on an index card about what it's about i mean that's just the the nature of, of media work right but we we thought right. let's if we read the whole book that's that that can be part of the hook no but it's it's fun as authors to get some deeper questions like you're asking so i just want to to call that out um so I, I, I wrote a book called uh, Train Your Brain Like an Olympian a few years ago, and it was actually published with ECW Press. So uh, we had that connection already. And, and I'm going to call her out directly. Jennifer Smith um, was my contact person for that book, and she has been the lead for Andre and I's book as well. Uh, and they've been fantastic. Uh, I have nothing but great things to say about them, and uh, we're really happy that we're dealing with them. Nice. Awesome. Go ahead, Nate. And... Uh Andre, obviously, we hope people buy the book and it has great success. But one thing we want hope that you would explain for our readers, readers, what is a sociogram and how does it help with uh, building building a team? Yeah, that's a good question. Thanks for asking that one. So a sociogram is a tool um, that I've used that, that other coaches have probably used in the past to identify links between members of a group of, in our case, um, teammates on, on a team. So basically it tells you like who is the potential leader, who is the influencer of that leader, who could be isolated also, who are the little um, uh, clicks on your teams also, like the mini units, uh, like within the big group uh, that could eventually uh, derail the whole group as well. Um, so in the book, you've, um, you, you will discover a way that I've used to, to develop a sociogram, but by asking a question to the team. So basically, we would fly to Taiwan or Japan, and I know once I arrive on the, at destination, I need to do like a, I need to put two together on a room in a room during the, during the duration um, of the World Cups. So I would ask them a question. Uh, one to three, give me your preference on the teammates you would like to share your room with. So one to three is my number one favorite, two and three. And then I look at the results and everything. And then I start to make connections, like who's picking who and who's not picking who. And I start to do some diagrams that you're going to discover in the book. And I ask um, uh, another question is, who would you not want to share your, your room with? So that gives you more information about about the connection that happens with, within within your team, and with that information, there's all kinds of things you could do. If you feel there's one individual on your team that is isolated, then you need to find out the reason why it's the case. Um, you might want to readjust your strategies to make sure that that person is no longer isolated. Uh, if you look at um, at uh, someone that everyone is pointing to, so that could be your leader. But that person that is picked by that person 
is is for me a key individual. So for an example, if JF is the key person on the team, he's a leader, everyone wants to room with JF, but JF is sticking Paul, then I'm going to use Paul as a vehicle to distribute a message to the group because I know Paul will tell JF and I know JF will tell the rest of the group. So, uh, so that's what a sociogram is all about. So you need to pick your questions. So basically the athletes don't know what you're doing. Um, like, uh, like other than trying to figure out the rooming list, uh, but it reveals all kinds of great information uh, that's going to give you um, uh, a little bit more leverage throughout the course uh, of, the, of your season. And just briefly, what's uh, the difference between you know micro teams that can be valuable to have and having cliques that, as you say, could could derail rail the collective right. spirit? So yeah, sometimes you, you need those little units. I'll give you an example. Sometimes you need a leadership team on your team. So I know many professional teams do have a leadership leadership team. Instead of having captains and two assistants, they will have more people in that group that will make decisions on the group. I have um, before like a social group where they would be responsible for all the social activities. I would have the what I call the lateral knowledge group they will seek out all kinds of great information that other teams are doing in order to see if those good ideas could be good for our team as well. So sometimes in, in a big group, you need to subdivide your group into smaller units for the benefit of the, of the group, where clicks are not functioning for the benefit of the group. They're fun functioning against the, 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 the big group. So that's the big difference between the two. Nice. Uh, just, just a few. Sorry, Nate, did I cut you off there? No, no, not at all, Neil. Just a few more questions, uh, and I, I just remembered one now that I, I wanted to ask. So I'm going to ask that in a second. But essentially, um, you know, coaching—the coaching that you guys do—is um, at the at a high level in in the sense that it's high performance athletes, um, you know, high yeah high level athletes, and also you do a lot of work with corporate clients. Where are we in? this type of life skill, this type of coaching, this mental aspect of coaching being brought to the common person? Are we are we getting there? Is that something we, for example, mental health wasn't always a priority 20, 30 years ago. Now we see it, you know, filtering into regular society more and more. Is is your type of coaching going to reach the average person? Uh, uh, do you see a trend in that, in that regard? Well, I think so. Um... I saw it with my first book and when I talked about the mental skills training that I that I do in the lead sport and how we can use it in the workplace in just normal day life. And and we already Andre and I already received some feedback on our on our new book now on the same thing. Like Andre mentioned it a while ago, like some of this stuff is great for parents. Um, it's great for in between friends and colleagues, uh, all their chapters on communication. Yeah, it's, it's written for coach athlete relationships, but um, you know, a lot of these communication skills that we're, we're, that we're, you know, explaining in our book, like the five, one chapter, which is five, ask five questions because before you, you give one piece of advice. And oftentimes we give advice so quickly, especially in our society now, like everything has to be fast, but actually take time to ask questions before you give a piece of advice. And that piece of advice will be different. Well, that's just as important with relationship with your friends or your spouse. Um, uh, or, you know, a teacher and a student at school than, than it is in, in the world of sport. And so, yes, I would say that this stuff, I think, can translate easily. And in, in, it wasn't the main purpose to write a book for general society. It was written for sport, obviously. 
but there's a transfer for sure. And um, but, uh, yeah, so who can you tell me right now, JF and Andre, who are some of the, uh, you know, maybe the companies and clients you are working with or continue to work with? Go ahead, Andre. Go first, Jeff. Uh, well, for, for me, guys, uh, many uh, Olympic committees, um, especially now in Scandinavia. Uh, so mainly recently, look at Iceland, um, Denmark. Um, looking also at the, at going in the fall to Finland as well, where other um, where um, uh, Norway will be there as well, and all other uh, countries from Scandinavia. I've done work also with um, with the Middle East, with some of the uh, Olympic committees as well there. Uh, Pan Am has been also something that I've done also, including the United States Olympic Committee that was leading the event uh, in Miami just before the pandemic. I've done Bermuda as well. So many, many uh, Olympic committees that are looking at, uh, at a better way of doing, uh, of structuring their um, their sports. And, and here in Quebec, like banks, uh, uh, energy co corporation pharma um, that have been um, asking for help as well in order to uh, uh, sometimes motivate sometimes structure them sometimes giving them ideas um, so that has been my my, uh, my side jean francois well a, a, a little bit of everything that andre just explained I, I do a lot more work in the corporate sector so you know pharma uh, companies to construction companies to, uh, I do a lot of work for the Canadian government. Um, and in the end, like it's all these organizations that are just looking to become better and have an edge, uh, over their competitors. Because, you know, when you're talking about financial, the financial field or, or pharmaceutical, like it's extremely competitive. There's, there's, there's a lot of money involved. Um, and in the end, if you can get their people to work together a little better, get them a little bit, you know, stronger mentally well it, they become better performers um because in the end it doesn't matter if you're an olympic athlete or if you're an employee somewhere mm -hmm. your brain is the motor to performance um and regardless if we're talking about sports teams or teams in a corporate sector the more you can get them to collaborate and communicate properly uh, to have a great team culture well we all know that they're going to perform better as well so uh, both of you have experience with Cirque du Soleil. Andre, you're currently with Cirque du Soleil. And uh, Jean-Francois, you uh, uh, ran away from school to, to join the circus, as you wrote in the book. Um, uh, so uh, what I was wondering is, we know we can learn from, from you guys. We know we can learn from Max Perot and Mikhail Kingsbury. But what can we learn from a clown? Well, that's a good one for GF. He's worked with them. <laughs> we can learn we can learn a lot from from clowns listen i, I could talk about my work with clowns for hours uh, but I, i'm going to keep it short clowns are are some of the best communicators i have ever witnessed in my life like if you think about what they do for a living they, they entertain thousands of people that they don't know um and they do it like several hundreds of times a year and, and what's unique about a clown compared to an acrobat, for instance, in a circus show is the acrobat, they'll do their acrobatic act and there's not much interaction with the crowd. Whereas for clowns, the oftentimes they'll, they'll go get people in the crowd, bring them on stage and do some funny stuff with them. And so it takes a lot of courage 
and it takes a lot of poise and, and you know, self-belief in your abilities to, to convince someone, um, you know, to believe in your shenanigans. And, and so um, great communicators, great connectors, they're great listeners, um, and, um, and they're just great performers. And the reason they're great performers is because they, they're so savvy and strategic about how they go uh, about a, a situation. And it's about finding solutions in, in every situation where they need to adapt. And so, anyways, all that to say that I could talk about clowns for a long time, but um, it, they're more than just scary people that are funny sometimes as well. They, they're very interesting people. Well, the best question for last. Thanks uh, to both of you uh, for joining us today. I know, JF, you probably have to run off, so we won't keep you any longer. Uh, but I wanted to thank you both uh, and Nate as well um, for, for doing this today. And obviously, uh, good luck with the book uh, going forward. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, much appreciated. Like like JF mentioned, like uh, great questions. Uh, and I appreciate it. Uh, I enjoyed the, the last hour spent with you guys. Nice. Thank you so much. Yeah.